Uh, and if, if you want a title, uh, this is Adoption, Your Highest Blessing uh, in God. And this idea that when the right time came, God took us, he redeemed us when Jesus came and paid it so that we would be adopted and we would be able to live as children of God. And so I'm going to uh, do a few passages just to show that Paul really does speak into this um, idea, even though it isn't one that's emphasized as much of others. Just before I get to the, to the text itself, uh, just a couple of things. One, the word of usage of sons. Um, in some translations, uh, the New Living Translation, which I often use a lot, uh, translates often these things as children. Um, but the word is, is sons, and it's deliberately sons in this context because Paul was contrasting it with slavery. And within the custom and the culture, so it was sons were the ones that were adopted. I mean, it's just the way it is different now in a Western world. And I think God's heart involves some of that adoption, some of our adoption, some of the other, cu- other customs. But in then the boys were adopted, as I'll say later, it was for specific purposes. And so the idea of going from slavery to sonship, that's how it's understood. So the text is intentionally sons. However, the spiritual meaning is for all to understand the role of adoption and intimacy. The second bit, and this is something that takes a lifetime uh, to discover, so me making a 30-second bullet point, it kind of seems meaningless. But part of the, dis- the extent to which you can receive the beauty of adoption and the message is in how you're able to receive God as re- revealed as a father. Because it's into the father, father's family that it took a place. And I, could, I would guess coming in a room when I don't know people's stories, that there will be a scale of stories of people's experience of an earthly father from they didn't have one, to they wish they'd never had one, to mine, which is, well, it it wasn't bad, and given what I've met other people, I'm not going to complain about it, to someone like Charlotte would be, who says I had a great, amazing uh, experience and example, and and still does. And, And a whole range of those things, and that obviously plays into people's hearts and minds when they hear the idea of God as Father. And so before we start because I can't do anything like that in a second. I just want everyone to close their eyes, and I want to pray, because I don't know from person to person what your experience is. And I just want to ask the Holy Spirit to come. Whatever your earthly experience, and therefore whatever projection you may put on God when it calls your Father. Holy Spirit, I just want to pray that, as it says, you're the one, the spirit of adoption. You're the one among being a guider and a comforter, and a convictor, and a teacher, and a friend, and all the things that you bring, Holy Spirit. You bring this spirit of adoption, the word says, uh, by which we can cry out, Abba, Father. And I just ask, Father, for each child of God in here, each son and daughter, that regardless of their experience of the past, regardless of the pain, that as they encounter the word of God, and they hear now, but more importantly, they read, and they meditate on, in their times with your word, and it as it does throughout the New Testament, as Jesus chooses to reveal you as Father, that they would be able to see past their own experiences, their own shortcomings that they saw. And they would understand that when Jesus says, pray our Father who art in heaven, that you are a heavenly Father, perfect, perfect provision, perfect protection, that your name, identity, and love that you place is perfect, 
that they are 100% secure in you, that you'll never let them go, that their ultimate home you are preparing for them now, and that you will see into completion what you have already started. In Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to read through uh, three texts, um, short, short ones, um, and then uh, look into it. So the first one is from one of the great chapters of the Bible, Romans chapter 8. And we're reading verses 14 to 17. And Paul writes, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs... Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. In Romans, you also get a hint of the other side of the coin. Today I'm really focusing on the, what should be the joy and the delight and the heart-filling, love-filling need that you are truly part of God's family. Uh, here we get a, a hint of the other side of the coin, though, that part of that calling in this life is one that will bring great suffering and sorrow. And Paul obviously teaches us um, through that. But really, this idea, spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Uh, secondly, I want to read from Ephesians chapter 1 and just verses 3 to 6. And Paul writes to the believers here, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And then, finally, uh, from Galatians, and starting at chapter 3, verse 26, uh, through chapter 4, verse 7. And in a, chap in a chapter in a book where Paul is, is challenging some of this idea of law plus faith, uh, certain things that should be added to uh, faith in Jesus as a means to be uh, saved, Paul goes on to say this, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons... 
God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Okay, you sort of get into that a a little bit more and really think about uh, the idea of adoption just to help. And I know it kind of feels cheating reading from a commentary. Um, But it really spoke to me um, years ago and even as I've refreshed. Uh, It's just a little commentary on Galatians uh, by a guy called David Platt, uh, sort of modern day. And um, it really talks about this idea of of adoption, including from someone with first-hand experience of it. Uh, My sister was adopted. Uh, Charlotte, I always said it's something that I thought I would do. Uh, As I get older, I don't know anymore in terms of the legal. One child is living in my family, along with Charlotte and Eli and I, or if it just relates to the fact that in our hearts, we've adopted several children in India. Um, But I love it as a picture of what God has ultimately done. And when it, when it happens in a family, and, and those of you who've got experiences of it, of this uh, picture. And so a couple of people are, are quoted in here. One is the guy who wrote it, and also another um, scholar some of you might have heard of, uh, Jay Packer. And um, maybe some of you come across a book called Knowing God, and uh, some quotes are from here. So I'll, I'll start from it. It says, the adoption process is challenging on so many different levels. One of the most challenging things that my wife and I have found has been hearing how people talk about adoption. People can tell that my daughter and one of my sons have been adopted. And when we share their stories, people say, oh, that's so nice. Now, do you have children of your own as well? That's phrase number one, not to say to an adoptive parent. I want to say, come in real close. I have a secret their hours. Other questions reveal a similar view of adoption. Some people wonder if we care about our children's heritage, and the very question implies that their heritage is thousands of miles away. But the reality is this, their heritage is here. Now that doesn't mean that Kazakhstan or China, the countries we've adopted from, are discounted altogether, or that a child who has lived in another country shouldn't have any appreciation for that country. But my son and daughter are Platts, not partly Platts, but fully Platts, with all the heritage that a Platt has. They're in our family in the same way as our other two sons. Another comment we hear is, I just don't know if I can love an adopted child like a biological child. There we go, using that distinction again. I guarantee you that the affection that my wife and I have for the children we have adopted is absolutely no different from, for our affection for the sons we had naturally. They're all our children. These phrases, myths, and misconception about adoption are not just annoyances to parents who have been through the adoption process. They're symptoms of something deeper. They show how little we understand what it means to be a part of God's family. Even our infatuation with the biological and adopted labels and the distinction between the two shows our tendency to qualify children into categories based around flesh and blood. As long as that's the case, we'll struggle with a gospel that tells a story of a spiritual, transracial adoption that changes the lives of each of us for all eternity. We are adopted into the family of God, and the implications of this are huge for understanding and living out Christianity. And so that's he really shares from his own heart and into a little bit of how our understanding of things in life, things that we see that God has put there, 
also then gets onto how we understand the nature of God, God's working, and his family, particularly in this idea. And I'm going to quote a, a little bit more, and this is where he, he quotes a commentator himself. And it's a bit where I said about the best news, the, the greatest news is even bigger than your sins are forgiven. And he goes on to set the scene by saying, look, the main thing we've had so far in Galatians is this idea of justification. The justifier died. That because of Jesus, Jesus and Jesus alone, and what Jesus alone did, I am free before God and I'm set free. But he goes on to say, Paul actually leads us in the teaching to something that Jesus demonstrated in his relationship with the Father, which is to go even further. So he says, we cannot overemphasize the importance of the doctrine of justification, for every follower of Christ needs a strong understanding of this biblical teaching. But justification is not the end of the gospel. In fact, it may not even be the greatest truth in the gospel. Here I want to borrow language from J.I. Packer's excellent book, Knowing God. He says, adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, higher even than justification. This may cause raising of eyebrows, for justification is a gift on God on what since, of which since Luther evangelicals have laid the greatest stress. And we are accustomed to say, almost without thinking, that free justification is God's supreme blessing to us sinners. Nonetheless, careful thought will show the truth of the statement we have just made. Justification, by which we mean God's forgiveness of the past, together with his acceptance of the future, is the primary and fundamental blessing of the gospel, is not in question. It's a primary blessing because it meets our primary spiritual need. We all stand by nature under God's judgment. His law condemns us. Guilt gnaws at us. We are restless, miserable, afraid. We have no peace in ourselves because we have no peace with our maker. So we need the forgiveness of sins and assurance of a restored relationship with God more than we need anything else in the world. And the gospel does this before it offers us anything else. But this is not to say that justification is the highest blessing of the gospel. Adoption is higher because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. Justification makes us right before God the judge, but in the doctrine of adoption we are loved by God the Father. Justification, it's legal. The judge says, not guilty. For your sins, not guilty. Not guilty. To each and every one of you knows Jesus. But in adoption, the judge then gets off of his seat, comes to each and every one of you, and says, I love you. You're in my family. Life, the other side of the cross. The forgiveness of sins, as incredible, fundamental as it is, Jesus' death is so amazing that that's just the start. That's just the, the entry point into the life in God. He says, come home with me as my child. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. In the answer to the question, what is a Christian, Packer says, the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as father. I know. You know, um, there was a, a children's song, and it was, but it goes like, I am a C, I am a C-H, I am a C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N, and I have C-H-R-I-S-T in my H-E-A-R-T, and I will. L-I-V-E. And then the last bit. <laughs> um, and 
you know, I delight in being able to say that I'm a Christian. I do. But I also know that it's a badge that people carry and they don't have a deep relationship with God. It's a label that they have. It's a part of a club they belong to. to maybe a set of rules that they now, they now follow. But, but at the cross, Jesus invites you to receive forgiveness of sins, but also to come and join him in a new family with God. And so, in the, going back to the, the scriptures now, some of the things. One, it says, predestined in his will to be adopted. Okay, already set and chosen by God for you, not just to get your out of hell free card, but to know the love of the Father. We're told in Galatians that it came at the right time, exactly when God planned it to be, at the birth and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. In Ephesians, it tells us through Jesus, only one way, through the life. And in Romans, it says it comes, as the Holy Spirit comes and he brings a spirit of adoption where it meets deep inside you in a way that you can call God confidently, crying out to him, Abba, Father. And it leads to this extra little amazing bit that you also become an heir of God. And so I just, three things, I put the um, alliteration just to make it easier to remember more than anything. But so what it really is to have adoption spiritually into God's uh, family. And the first thing is you get a new family identity. And to express this in a way that Paul was trying to express it to his hearers, he uses the picture of adoption that was prevalent in Roman days. And so unlike Western adoption, which is usually based on a family wanting a child because they don't have one or because they want to particularly provide a loving and nurturing home for one, uh, adoption in those days was probably more business-like, and it was predominantly done by richer, wealthier Roman families that didn't have a son of their own, was unable to have one, and therefore wouldn't be able to carry on the name, the family name, into the future, and there would be no one to pass on the family inheritance, you know, the mansion or whatever they had, into their child in the future. And so to avoid it being lost, they would adopt an adult male, usually a young man, in their 20s, and they would adopt and so that he would then become the future the future heir. And they may take someone from another fairly well-off Roman family, but that just happened to have so many sons that they were like, wow, our inheritance won't cover all of these sons. And so they would be willing to pass one over to a family that didn't have one. But based on the language that Paul is in his contrast in here with slavery, it looks that he has in mind in what would happen in some occasions where a family would take a slave and a slave in those days was someone without any rights. Okay, the only right they had was to do the work. Um, not necessarily a slave that we think uh, 19th century America. Not that kind of brutality, but yet still without their own sense of freedom and life. So they, they may be treated as harshly. They may have not, you know, in the ways of the stories that we've heard and read about. But yet they didn't have their own future because their future was just to be a slave. And then their children would likewise have that future. And so they would take the slave and they, may, they, bought, they bought this child from another slave's family. And they would go in and three times before a judge, they would say, this is my son. And the other one would hand it over. And they would buy the slave 
freeing the slave, allowing them to be a Roman citizen so that they could then adopt them and place them. And that person would then become the son of the pater familias, the father of the family. And that one who was once a slave with no hope, with no rights, with no inheritance, with no identity other than you're a slave, would now take on the name of a well-off, highly regarded Roman family, would live the life free now as a son within that family and would know that one day he was going to inherit the estate and take over and become the pater familias, the father of the family himself. And so that's the picture that Paul is using when he's trying to tell the, the believers in the various churches that he's speaking to here of the wonder of what God has done for you in taking you out of your slavery and wherever you felt your slavery was strongest, was either slavery to the elementary principles of this world. For some of us, that's the certain sins. For others, it's the law, just as it was for the Jewish believers, where we so much trying to do everything to make it right with God and we always fail. Slavery to fear. Okay, and it's not that those experiences disappear, because we know. We know we still face those battles. But that whereas once you were a slave to that, and by very nature you could not live that way, your position as a child, okay, not just that you're forgiven, but your position before God, he doesn't see that anymore. He only sees a son or a daughter. He only sees you as a son or a daughter. Whether you experience that freedom, whether you feel like that freedom's in your life, whether you know the intimacy of a loving father or not, yet your status, your position before God is free because you're a son or a daughter. And when the slave came in or the son came in, whatever debt their family had, whatever debt was upon them, because they were transferred to a new family, everything else was forgotten, forgiven, and cancelled and eradicated. And that's what happens for us. Colossians tells us, doesn't it? Nailed to the cross for Satan and all his cohorts to see that everything is paid in full and you are free and seen as a child. And so you get that identity. And so, yeah, I am a C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N, but I'm more than that because I'm a child of the living God. And that includes being, I hope, a Christian, a little Christ, a follower of it. But I also know people who identify themselves as Christians and yet struggle to know God, struggle to walk with God, struggle to really live in a way that the word calls us to. So you get a new identity in Christ uh, as a child. And with that will come a new family inheritance. Uh, As I said, again, still staying with the, the picture that Paul is drawing on. When that son then brought into this new family, eventually that inheritance that signaled purpose in life, signaled, you know, this, you'd made it, you know, you got it. You were going to take the inheritance, the estate, the money, you know, it was all going to be conferred on this one who was once a slave going nowhere and now an inheritance. But it gets the, this is where the allegory kind of, the picture fades and doesn't work quite well because the difference there is that the son would get it when the father died. When the pater familias died and they would take that place. But you see, you get your inheritance when you die. Two ways. One, physically, when this body ceases, you will get a physical, real, 
tangible, appeals to the senses, not some idea floating in the sky, inheritance that God is, pre- is preparing for you now that you'll enjoy forever so when you die. But also, as we read earlier in Ephesians, that Christ gives you all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places and you experience them now as you die to yourself and let Jesus live through you. And the more that you die to yourself now, the more you experience heaven or the new earth before you actually get there with peace and joy and love and and security and a sense of self-worth and value and everything that enables us to live as sons and daughters happily who we are. That inheritance is yours now to the extent that you're willing to, to die to yourself in order that you can receive from Christ. And then finally, and for me, the most significant and the most important, and this is the ultimate for me. And uh, I guess everyone has a verse, was it? You, John, was talking about a life verse. Were we on that the other day? And I was like, oh, crumbs. I don't even know I can answer that question. I'm like, I better think of one before Sunday. <laughs> uh, and then I was reminded of this verse. I can actually quote it. I don't need to. John chapter 17, verse 3. Jesus is praying. It's an important prayer because he knows he's about to get crucified. He's had his time with his disciples. He shared his last words. Now he's having time with the Father. And he does it. This to me is the peak of life, which I know is quite a bold statement. Uh, And everyone will have their own sense of understanding. But for me, this is the peak of life itself. Jesus prays the Father and he says this. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The pinnacle, the greatest bit I believe you get is a family intimacy that you get when you become a child of God. Identity, yeah, I need it. Inheritance, yeah, I want that. But the greatest, the peak of what it is to exist, to know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. And so you get a new family intimacy Contrast with in, in, in Exodus, just after Moses has given, sorry, God has given through Moses the Ten Commandments and the law has been given. And then following the giving, there's quite a scene. There's lightning, there's thunder, the mountain's smoking. Everyone realizes there's something significant going on. And do you know what they say? They say to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen to you. But don't let God speak to us lest we die. They had no family intimacy. Okay? And sporadically we see in the Old Testament, maybe King David more than anyone else, people who had intimacy with God, people that were selected. But the people in general had no intimacy. Okay? So even though they were the chosen race, the great selected nation, but yet they didn't have intimacy. We don't even let God speak to us because we'll die. Yet Jesus says... But the very essence of eternal life, the most significant thing there is in your existence, is to know the one true God, who he he is now revealing as Father, and Jesus Christ whom he sent. And in the picture of the Trinity, Jesus then shows, and the way that you will experience that is by allowing the Holy Spirit to come and show you everything that it is to know and be with God. Jesus told the people to address God as Father, He called his followers friends. 
he said, I'm sending you another one who is a comforter, a guide, a companion. All relational language of intimacy and closeness. You know, we still know it still applies that the, the beginning of wisdom is a fear of the Lord. Because he is awesome and he is holy and he is righteous. And it is also true that he wants you to come and know him deeply as a child of God. And that's expressed uh, through Jesus' own cry. We find it in Mark. Um, in his moment of anguish, he says, Abba, Father. And Paul tells us that the spirit that he puts within us, that tells us that you are a son, you are a daughter of the living God, is one that allows you to cry out, Abba, Father. And I know because other people have spoken on it, and they say it means Daddy, and then other people get really upset and say it doesn't mean Daddy, that's not the correct usage of it. You know, the term was used by young children towards their father in a Jewish home. So it was a term of intimacy, whatever the best English translation of it is. It was a term of intimacy with the child. But more than that, the scripture says that you can cry it out. It is meant to be a cry of confident expectation that God will hear you and his presence will go with you. When I went to Ukraine last year, I don't want to make it sound braver than it was because I knew I was going to the part of the country that wasn't a war zone. Um, but, but still, you know, I was going in traveling myself, going in on the train, going through the immigration, going into a country that itself was at war. And the reason I enjoy that, well, partly I enjoy the adventure, and I enjoy the adventure with Jesus, is because I know that if needed, I can cry out, Abba, Father. He's my protection. He is my provision. He is my security and safety and guide. And because I know him, I can be in there. When I was in, and I'm going to finish in a minute, I was in Mozambique, and uh, it was a mission school, and it was very much about worship and, and intimacy with God. And this guy spoke, and he looked, you know, when you make a judgment on how someone looks, and then his message was completely different. He's a big guy, he's full of tattoos, biker guy, I think. So I'm thinking he's going to have a thing about salvation, living for the cross, um, you know, kind of guy. And um, he was a worship leader. And the, the, you know, the place, very anointed place was going. And then he began to talk about his relationship with God. And he said, oh, you know, you need to be intimacy. So, and I said when I went that I would try anything to try and get closer to Jesus. So I'd give anything a go. So he, he gets all of the students in this mission school. And he says, right, I want you to picture yourself dancing with Jesus. And then start singing, spin me round, spin me right round, something like this. Well, I lasted for about three seconds. I gave it a go. <laughs> I tried it. <laughs> and I was like, mm. <laughs> you know, I'm struggling here. Because you know what I want to do in my state right now? You know what I would absolutely love? I want to play sport with Jesus. You know, I want to have a game of tennis. I want to have a football match with Jesus. You know, that's what I want to do. That's me. That's the, the intimacy. And, I understood it, and some of the other students were absolutely blown away, and they said, I imagined Jesus dancing with Jesus, and it was amazing, and they loved it. I, I struggled, um, you know, and um, intimacy looks different to different people. Some of us are more physically touchy. Some of us are in different ways. But when I, to my people at Skem, and I'm trying to define the word intimacy, I say unspoiled closeness. Unspoiled closeness. So then there's nothing hindering the two to be together. And Jesus 
that's his desire for you. When he beckons you to the cross, you firstly and foremost have to repent of your sin. Otherwise, you don't go anywhere. But when you do, he doesn't say, right, here's your entry into heaven. Now crack along, will you, till you get there. He says, hey, come, experience life the other side of the cross. Ask the Father to send you the Holy Spirit and keep sending you the Holy Spirit. And come and know what it's like to be a son and a daughter of God, to know that you truly are adopted into his family. And, um, you know, this was a message that particularly I got refocused, uh, you know, partly uh, on the back of, of a move in Toronto in 1994, but it wasn't because of that. It was written by Paul and demonstrated by Jesus uh, many thousands of years ago. But it also featured in a song that I grew up singing as a child and then later in life experienced some of its reality. A song by Ishmael. Some of you who have been in church a long time will know it. So, Father God, I wonder. Father God, I wonder how I managed to exist without the knowledge of your parenthood and your loving care. But now I am your son. I am adopted in your family. And I will never be alone because, Father God, you're there beside me. And then to the chorus, I will sing your praises. I was singing that as a child, but it wasn't experienced as a child in that sense. I mean, there was an extent to which I knew God and accepted Christ. And so that was, I think, 1984. It was written through that song. God wanting to express that and what he wants to express for you. I don't know how you want to finish or ministry you want to do or prayer or anything, whatever you want to. Uh, go with.